Well, good morning. And it is good to be together. And um, I so enjoy just worship. It's something about it just steadies my spirit and, and brings me uh, in a place where distractions are just not, a, not an issue. Get to focus on the Lord like that. Beautiful day. Um, so today we're going to pick back up in Acts chapter 20 with a message about the role of the elder as the protector of the church. Um, built into this passage is, is a metaphor um, about a shepherd and his sheep, and specifically in how a shepherd guards the sheep from fierce wolves and from danger. So uh, this is very, very, very important. And as the gospel advances, this is what the book of Acts is all about, is the birth of the church and the gospel advancing uh, from city to city. As the gospel advances, new believers are brought into the church, the body of Christ. And um, so leadership within the church matters because the health of the body matters to the mission of the gospel. So from today's scripture, we're going to see the elder as or elder pastor as the protector of the sheep. Now, before we get into scripture, I do want to recognize a couple of men who have served well as elders uh, here for our, the Mountain View family. Today, they are officially stepping down as elders. Both of these men uh, expressed a desire to step down a couple of years ago. And, um, but then uh, we, we worked to mentor and affirm three new elders to sort of uh, pick up the slack. It took three to pick up for these two guys, I guess. Um, but then COVID happened. And uh, praise the Lord that these men decided to continue leading us through that crisis. They love this church. They have served well. So today I just want to take a moment and honor a couple of guys. Um, so Barry Billings, somewhere out there, and Larry Cunningham. Would you guys just stand and let us say thank you to you? I, they, I'm not going to call them to the front, but we need to thank these brothers. Both of, both of these men are content to be behind the scenes. I, I wouldn't want to call them to the front. They'd be mad at me. Uh, but I encourage you uh, to thank them for years of faithful service. Barry's been serving as an elder since the church began 11 years ago. And so that's quite a long season. And we thank God for Barry and his leadership. Uh, Larry has been sharing, uh, serving, I think, about eight years. Is that right, brother? Somewhere around eight years off and on. He, he served for a bit. Then he, he was uh, not an elder for a season. And then he's, we, we recruited him back on. And, but about eight years, I think, in total. And... Um, so, men, we, as a, as a body of Christ, want to thank you for your devotion to Jesus and to his church. And we love you. We love you. Thank you. So, Paul, in this scripture, has been challenging the elders in Ephesus to lead well by following the example he set for them for, for three years. Being in, in Ephesus, he uh, planted and shepherded a church for three years. So he starts out this section by saying, remember how I lived among you for, for three years. Remember my example. And he went through a, a long uh, bit we talked about last time about his example as a leader. Well, in our text today, Paul shifts from looking at his past example to giving a strong warning about future danger. So he calls these elders together. And warns them. So would you stand with me as we read 10 verses from Acts chapter 20? We'll stand in honor of God's word. 
beginning in verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. This is the word of the Lord. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men twisting or speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, Paul knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that he would not, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We look to your word now to hear from your spirit. We pray for the elders and pastors in this church, Lord, that you um, would call us to be the shepherds we're meant to be, that you would equip us for the task. God, strengthen this church. Strengthen us for the mission of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So because the church is an integral piece to the gospel puzzle, the enemy will stop at nothing to destroy the church. Anybody believe that? Listen, because the church matters to the mission, the enemy will stop at nothing to destroy the church. He will attack the sheep. He will distract the shepherd. He will divide the flock. Whatever it takes to keep these sheep from mobilizing to advance the gospel. Whatever it takes to keep these sheep from loving one another, loving Christ and loving the world. Whatever it takes, the enemy will do that. That's his aim. So we, church and elders and pastors, we must be on guard. Servants of the church must be vigilant, sober-minded, alert. This is the warning from Paul. It's a warning and a command. It is the responsibility of the elder pastor, the shepherds of the church, to protect the church. Now, what is an elder? Well, in this one text, we're given the three words. Uh, that the Bible uses for pastor, for elder. These three Greek words are used interchangeably for the same men. These same men from Ephesus, these three, three Greek words are used for them. It's on your, your study guide. I'm going to teach you a little bit of Greek this morning, but here they are. The first word is presbyteros. It's where we get our English word um, presbytery or presbyterian even. But the idea here with presbyteros is maturity. It's maturity. We're talking about men who have the wisdom to lead, not necessarily 
um, wisdom as the earth would, de- as the world would define it. Wisdom, worldly definition of wisdom is, is knowledge inspired by experience, right? You know, you've got a man who's got some knowledge and his experience has, has enlightened him. And that's not to be discounted. But biblical wisdom is not the same. James chapter 3 is it's not knowledge inspired by experience. It's knowledge inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's a different kind of wisdom in the church. It's the kind of wisdom that listens to the Spirit of God even when it doesn't make sense by your experience. So the Bible is calling presbyteros, men with that kind of maturity, to lead his people. Secondly, there's a word episkopos. Episkopos. And the, the meaning behind this word is the word authority. You write, write down authority. What we're talking about here is men who have the following and the respect to lead. They have the authority. It's been given to them by the Lord. This is authority, episkopos. These are elders. And then the third word is probably, even though it's the most seldom used in the Bible, it's our most, most frequent mentality about it. Because the metaphor is all through the scripture. But the third word is the Greek word poimen. And it's used here in this text. Uh, but it's the idea of responsibility. The, uh, the imagery behind this word is that of the shepherd. And we've read from the Psalms about the, the Lord is my shepherd. We've sung about God leaving the, the 99 to pursue the one. That's an illustration of a shepherd and his sheep. We, we know what this is about, or at least we feel it. You feel it when someone cares for you, don't you? So the idea here is responsibility. And what we're talking about behind this idea of a shepherding elder is men who have the care and the courage to lead. Men who have the care and the courage to lead. It takes both to shepherd the flock of God. You you, you care for them and you're willing to fight for them. So elders, in this text, we're looking at the metaphor in particular of shepherding, this idea of caring and courage. We'll dig into that. But I do want to say one more truth about elder pastor. Listen, the Bible tells us in verse 28 The scripture says, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which, listen, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So here's a a truth, a reality. Elders are not just elected, nominated and voted on or whatever by the people. Elders are appointed by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit appoints and the people of God affirm so the people of God gather and say, yes, this man, this brother is a, is a man of maturity, a man of authority, a man of responsibility. He cares and he has courage. And yes, we affirm the Holy Spirit's call on him to be our shepherd, to be one of our shepherds. They're appointed specifically by the Holy Spirit, but embedded in the text is the, the affirmation of the people. Think about it for just a moment. Paul's in the city of Miletus and he sends up to Ephesus and he says, send the elders of the church down to me. So here's what we know. We know that when Paul sent for them, he knew who they were. They knew who they were and the people who knew who they were. Right. Everybody knew who they were. These men came from Ephesus and they were identified, known as elders. So the Holy Spirit appoints the people of God affirm. 
In Acts 20, verses 28 through 38, what we're going to see mainly today is the role of elder as the protector. The one who cares and is courageous like a shepherd. He loves the sheep, so he fights for them. This is the primary role of a husband father in the home as well. My wife tells me that uh, anytime I'm traveling, especially when I go overseas, that she feels um, a heavy burden in our home to keep our family safe. Uh, She feels my absence. Any of you ladies in the room could identify when your husband's gone, like especially when he's gone, like out of reach, gone for a few days. You just feel the weight of um, of his security is gone. Right. Uh, But when I'm home, even though I don't really do much (laughs) uh, in way of protection, there's just a a rest in the security that I provide. And that's the way it's meant to be. When when the shepherd is there, the sheep feel safe. They feel protected and guarded. and, And it's because the role of the shepherd is that of protector. Paul gives a strong warning to these elders that when he leaves, wolves will come. They'll come from the outside. And then he says, and some will even rise up from the inside. So he warns, pastor, be alert. Be on guard. Be watchful. Pay attention. These are commands from the Lord for elders. So I want to dig into these a little bit today. The shepherd protects the flock from outside dangers, from inside divisions, and even from internal Deception. I want to dig into all of those this morning. So what does Paul warn? What does he say uh, to pastors, elders? Here's what he says. And this is for all believers as well. Church, we're, we're responsible for one another, right? There's some mutual accountability. We love each other. But there are shepherds that men have put over us. And so here's what the Lord says to us. First, Paul says, be on guard against outside dangers. Against outside dangers. Verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves are going to come in among you, not sparing the flock. These are outside dangers. As the church was beginning in the book of Acts, what we've learned, what we have seen is that the foundations of truth in the gospel of who Jesus is, what he came to do and what is the good news of the hope of Christ Those foundations of truth are so crucial. There have been arguments about whether or not somebody needs to be circumcised, right? We spent a long time, in fact, somebody texted me and said, I don't think I've ever heard the word circumcision in a sermon before that many times before. We've talked a lot about these things. Why? Why? Why are we having these arguments in the Bible? Because the gospel and the purity of the gospel message matters. So here's what we're saying, that From the church's founding, from its beginning, Ephesians 2.20 says that it was built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Here's what he means. The prophets prepared for the Messiah and the apostles walked with him. All of that led to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. He is the foundation The Bible in the New Testament says that Jesus is the cornerstone, that we are living stones being built together into a holy temple. But Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. 
So the truth here is that the gospel of Jesus cannot be changed, cannot be altered, cannot be tweaked, can't be twisted. It must stay pure. So when Paul is calling for elders to be on guard against outside wolves, he's speaking specifically about those who are uh, bringing influence or teachings that are contrary to the message of Christ. Paul says there are fierce, some of your translations may say savage wolves that will not spare the flock. And it's because even a little bit of twisting of the gospel message is destructive to the church. John 10, 10, Jesus says about our enemy that he has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And these wolves come on his mission. Now they may not know that's their mission, but that's their mission. To twist the gospel is to destroy the church. So while Paul is here in Ephesus or with these brothers, he owns the responsibility of guarding the flock. Fellow elders, do you see that in the text? He says, when I leave, wolves will come in. What he's saying is, long as I'm here, there's no wolf coming in here. But when I leave, you're in danger. Rise up, brothers. That's what Paul is saying. He will not allow false teaching or even subtle deviations to the true gospel. If we looked at Galatians chapter one in verses six through ten, you would see Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and the one turning to a different gospel. And he goes on telling these Galatian believers, you must fight, contend for the truth of the gospel. I'm surprised that you're so quickly deserting all the things I taught you. Paul's a a fierce defender of the truth of the gospel because he's a good shepherd. He's a fighter for the faith of the flock. So church, there are some among us, some of you who are probably now listening and hearing some teaching that's dangerous. Maybe not in this room, hopefully not in this room. But some of you are listening to some teaching that is a twisting of the truth. And I just want to mention three of these type things that are most prevalent. Three of the most dangerous lines of thinking. The first one is a prosperity teaching. Probably known as the prosperity gospel. But here's what it says. It's about me. God's biggest priority is my happiness. God loves me, right? He wants me to be happy. He wants to take care of me. He wants me healthy and wealthy and it keeps going. Well, the problem here is that there is a little bit of truth. God does love you. He does want your happiness. But where it's twisted is this. This is not your story. It's his story. You are part of the story of the grace of an almighty God. And he knows that your deepest happiness will be found in treasuring him. His glory is your good. But God will use even your persistent joy in the midst of awful trials. To prove his goodness and grace to an outside world. So. While the prosperity teaching teaches that health and wellness is God's plan for all of us, we know it's not true. 
Most of the New Testament is written to suffering believers. Why would God preserve a teaching for us on how to suffer unless we should expect it? What God is teaching us is not that he's not for our good. He's teaching us that he is our utmost treasure. And in the midst of deep suffering, we can hold to and have joy because this world is not our home. We have a home with him forever. Consider for a moment John the Baptist. He sent to Jesus from prison, knowing that his life was on the line. He sent to Jesus and said, you're in the city. I know you're in the city. Are you the Messiah? I mean, I've been doing this a long time. I'm sure I'm pretty sure you're the Messiah. Or is there someone else? And I think maybe he's questioning because his situation is really hard. And Jesus sent back to him and basically affirmed, yes, look around, John. The, the, the lame are leaping, the, the, the deaf are hearing, the blind are seeing, yes, I'm the Messiah. But you're going to die in that jail. This was a tough word for John. Tough word for any of us. Sometimes God's path is suffering. Consider Stephen the martyr. Stephen, stoned for bold preaching of the gospel. God used his suffering. What was meant to stomp out the gospel ended up spreading the gospel. Consider James. We don't have much about James being beheaded. But James, the leader of the church at that time, was just taken and beheaded. Many others we could discuss, not to mention Jesus Christ himself. The greatest act of the love of God came through the worst acting act of suffering a man could ever endure. The prosperity gospel, make no mistake, is a lie. And it is dangerous to the church. Second one I want to teach you about today is this idea of legalism. These next two are um, ditches that I think all of us have a tendency to drift off into the ditch. You know, either you drift off into legalism or you drift off into liberty. I want to talk about both. Legalism says it's all about what I do or don't do. All about what I do or don't do. To be in good standing with God, I must fill in the blank. I have to do this or I have to not do that. And you say, I don't know if I think that way. Maybe you think this way. Well, when I've had my quiet time, had my praise music on, smiled at my children in the morning, then I know it's going to be a good day. And what we find ourselves doing is trading with God. My goodness for your goodness. He'll be good to me if I'm a good boy. Friend, that's, that's a legalistic slant that's not the gospel. God is good even when you're bad. The truth is, we are righteous apart from our works. We are righteous. We are right with God only by the finished work of Jesus Christ. He took our sin and he gave us his goodness. This is the gospel, but it is easy to forget. And here's the thing. There is a hint of truth, as most good lies are. There's a hint of truth here. God does bless our obedience and God does discipline our disobedience. But you are no less a son or daughter of the king of kings based on what you do or do not do. He has adopted you. If you're a follower, a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been forever adopted into a family. 
And you have his name, not because of what you do, but because of what the Son of God has done. Liberty. The other ditch we tend to fall into is the idea of liberty. While legalism says it's all about what I do, liberty says it doesn't matter what I do. I'm totally free to do whatever I want. There's no standard for holy living. God loves me no matter what. Do you hear the subtle truth? There is a subtle truth there. God does love you. But here's the real truth. Jesus did not abolish the law. He fulfilled it. He is the new standard. Sin is still sin. And it will damn you to hell. If you play God and make up your own rules, you will answer to him. Your only hope is not that you play God, but that God played man. God the Son came as a man and fulfilled all the law. He willingly took the punishment your sin deserves. Jesus didn't rewrite the rules. He lived up to them. If you trust him completely, you will be saved. And find true liberty and freedom in Christ. And it's not the kind of freedom that lets you run wild in your sin. No, it's the empowering freedom to joyfully obey this God. That's the good news of the gospel. But subtle teaching, subtle things, prosperity, legalism, liberty, they sneak in like wolves. Elder, pastor, church, we must be on guard against the danger of wolves. Secondly. Paul says, watch out, not just for outside danger, but inside division. Look at what he says in, uh, I believe it's verse 30 and 31. Paul says, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Why? What's the motive? Here's what he says, to draw away the disciples after them. Notice the heart here. It's a heart of self-promotion. It's a heart of pride. Self-promotion is divisive. But this is the beauty of a plurality of elders. A plurality of shepherds. One shepherd looks to another and says, hey, get your act together. That's the way it ought to be. There must be mutual accountability. Not just personal accountability, but mutual accountability. Where if I go off course, somebody calls me for a meeting. And it ought to be that way. Because the church is worth it. I'm reminded, uh, I'm reminded of the story in John chapter 3 when John the Baptist, his, his disciples were, uh, were trying to stir up his pride, I think, maybe stroke his ego a little bit. And in the same way, not meaning to do it, what they did was they, pit, they pitted John against Jesus. And in John chapter 3, they, they stir him up. They said, John, look, he, Jesus is over there. He's baptizing and all these people are going to him. It was kind of like a a poke at him. Don't don't you care? Like you're losing disciples. That guy over there is his thing's growing and yours is shrinking. It's it's this play of self-promotion. And John uses a wedding illustration to explain. He says, I'm not the main character here, guys. Look, I'm just in the wedding party. I love that illustration. He says, it would be unacceptable for me to try to steal the moment from the groom and his bride. 
But as a friend, John says, I rejoice in the groom's voice. Could you imagine, you know, that picture at the wedding where, you know, the, the doors open and the, and the bride comes out in all her beauty and the cameras swing quickly to get a picture of the bride. Everybody's all to see the bride walking down with her father. And then the camera wants to get the groom's response, right? Sweet pivot back. Let me get the groom. And sometimes they, you know, sometimes they can't stand it because there's just so much love, right? But could you imagine the camera pivots to get the groom and the groomsman's like, hey, this is good. This is good right here. Everybody be like, dude, get out of the way. This is not about you. Here's the point John is making, right? John said, I'm not the main character here. I'm just in the wedding party. I'm here to celebrate a marriage. I'm not the groom. He's the groom. This is the beauty that's at risk, that's at at danger with this idea of self-promotion. We have to be on guard that to make sure that no man steals Jesus' spotlight. John has some really good guidance for us here in John 3. He just says, I'll go through these quickly. He says, the blessings of others are blessings from God. The point he's making there is don't resent someone's gifting. No, recognize their giver. Recognize the giver. John then says, I'm sent here to point people to Christ, not to be the Christ. So he's telling us, know your role. Know your role. And thirdly, he says, there's great joy when Jesus increases, even if I decrease. I love John 3.30. Simple, very memorizable, memorizable word, phrase, verse. Here's what it says. He must increase. I must decrease. That's beautiful truth. It's either about you or it's about him. Check your heart. Watch out for inside division. Thirdly. Paul warns, he says, stay alert for internal deception, internal deception. It's a really strange pivot in this passage. When you get to verse 33, Paul pivots uh, from talking about teaching and doctrine. He gets really practical. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold. And he talks a little bit about money. And this is really interesting. But here's the point. He's warning elders and he's teaching them the deceptiveness of money is a real threat to your heart. It's a real threat to your heart. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and your money. It'll be one or the other. Matthew 6, 24. He also says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Luke 12, 34. So the things you treasure, your heart is following after your treasures. In this very text, Paul quotes Jesus as saying it's more blessed To give than to receive. This is very contrary to everything earthly, isn't it? It sure seems like receiving is a lot of fun, right? I mean, having more, bigger, better, nicer, newer. Isn't that where it's at, man? That's where it's at. Or is it? Jesus' kingdom is upside down from the economy of this world. And if we're honest, we'll admit that many times... The things that we have actually have us. Jesus says there is freedom and joy in giving. He says that hardworking hands enable a generous heart. Isn't that good? Jesus is saying, hey, the more you gain from your work, the more you get to give. But earthly riches 
make no mistake, are a deceptive temptation. You know, Paul is going to send Timothy to be the pastor of this church in Ephesus. Paul is discipling up Timothy. He's going to go and be their pastor. And Paul writes to Timothy a similar warning in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Listen to these words. Paul says to Timothy, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now make no mistake. The love of money, not just money, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, listen, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, Paul says to Timothy. And he says to us as well, don't be given to the love of money. It's dangerous. You know, leadership in this world, leadership in this world, in business and, and in this life, is often given to those who have mastered the making and keeping of money. You agree? Think about what I just said. Leadership in business and in this life is often given, entrusted to those who have mastered the making and keeping of money. Ironically, the admired traits in this world may actually disqualify a man from leading as an elder in the church. Do you remember when Judas objected to the woman breaking the alabaster jar and anointing Jesus with the expensive perfume? It was her way of worshiping Christ, but Judas's objection was that her worship was wasteful. Surely there's better ways for us to use that much money, Judas suggests. We could, we could feed the poor. We could feed a lot of poor children with that money. Perhaps a smaller jar of less expensive perfume, Judas might have suggested. Listen, church. A man who treasures stuff over the Savior is deceived and is a danger to the church. We need men who are quick to give, wisely and generously investing in the king's mission. We worship God as we leverage earthly possessions for eternal treasure. That's a big part of worship. We talk, try to do some teaching, talking about our giving every week. It's not just about paying bills, you understand? It's about investing in the kingdom. Fourthly, Paul warns us and commands, and he does this with his own life and by his example. He commands, don't settle for shallow love or safe living. Specifically for our elders, I want us to hear this. Don't settle for shallow love or safe living. There's an incredible picture of gospel love in the ending few verses of this text, Paul is saying goodbye. He's told him, I'm leaving and you're not going to see my face again. But he's, he's not superficial. He's not shallow. In fact, the way this unfolds really, really tells us that there's deep gospel love here, that their love for one another runs deep. Notice some marks of gospel love for one another. 
Paul gathers them together. They kneel down and pray. He prays with them all. Um, I want to tell you one of the most intimate things that you can do with other brothers and sisters in Christ is get on your knees and pray to your king. It's beautifully intimate. It's a moment shared in love for one another. Next, it says that they, there was much weeping. There's embracing and kissing. There's sorrow at the thought of not seeing him again. And then, if all that whole conversation wasn't enough, it says that they, they went with him to his ship. You don't, you don't go with somebody to the airport when they're leaving unless you really care, right? So we can presume there has been a great amount of time and life investment that brought them to this point. Business associates do not say goodbye like this, right? This is how people show both a sincere love for one another and, listen, a resolved devotion to gospel mission. Paul loves them and he's only leaving them to go and do it again. His love for Christ, his love for the unreached is what's calling him to go. It would have certainly been easier for him to stay in Ephesus where he is loved and where he loves them. But here's the thing. Too many people are still without Christ. And so Paul, the mission of the gospel compels him. The love of Christ compels him to leave, even though it'd be easier and safer to stay. He knows that going in Jerusalem, possible death awaits him. Certainly more persecution. But he didn't settle for safe and easy. In his leaving, he calls those elders who he's talking to. He calls them to put their yes on the table for whatever God has called them to do. Church, let me finish today with this exhortation to each of us and this word of encouragement. Elders are shepherds protecting the flock from danger. Elders are shepherds, and yet we are still sheep. We're still sheep. There is truly only one shepherd for the church. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the ultimate shepherd who cares and is courageous for his flock. And we look to Jesus Christ as the head of this body. It is his church and we will follow his lead. Amen.